Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. David, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm not going to act like we didn't just talk for like 30 minutes off air, but please, would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Robbie. Um, my name's David McGrogan. Uh, I'm an associate professor of law at uh, Northumbria Law School, which is in the northeast of England in a place called Newcastle, which you might have heard of. Um, yeah, I'm not from there originally. I'm from a place called Liverpool originally, uh, which you might have heard of as well. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of weird things in the past. I've lived in quite a few different countries. Um, so I've got a few sort of like, I guess, different perspectives on things than the average like British person. Um, I lived in Japan for getting on for a decade. Um, before that, I've kind of did a lot of volunteering work in Central Asia, um, different places. Um, so, yeah, I kind of, um, I mean, we're going to talk about the pandemic and things like that, but I think a lot of that's given me kind of different perspectives on on the way things are. That's interesting. I never, I know you wrote for Brownstone, but if you lived in Japan for a little while, were you curious to what was going on during the pandemic that was going on in Japan? Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, my wife's Japanese, so like we were, um, you know, kind of, I kept like close, close eye on it, yeah, what was going on in the news. And we went, for a long time, it was really hard to get in and out of Japan because, um I mean, we're going to talk about this, I'm sure, as well, but I haven't been vaccinated. Not because I want to be clear, like, I don't really judge anybody who has been. I've got no particular issue with the vaccine per se. My position was always just, it should be personal choice. And that should be the only consideration, really, if you're going to have the vaccine or not. Look, anybody that would criticize you on not getting a shot, let's just say in the beginning when vaccines first rolled out, there was a lot of people that were like, I ain't going to be the first one to sign up for that. Side. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But then it quickly turned into, oh, you're insane if you don't get it. Right. That, that was like it quickly became that. And I, my just my personality, I think you might be a little bit like this as well. It's just like ingrained in me that if someone tells me what to do, I am definitely not going to do it. It's just like even if even if it's perfectly sensible like it's just my my personality anyone who knows me will, will tell you that that's true like i've just i can't be told what to do like you'll you'll end up doing the whole dishes and then if someone comes in while you're doing the dishes and you're like oh you're doing the dishes and then you're just like that just went out the window it's not an authority thing i, I had to look into that it's a common symptom with like adhd but they they say it's not an authority thing like you're not just trying to be like against the system which some people in the pandemic are just against the system i think i've grown like that a little bit but it's more about like you're trying to be like an individual at the same time but this whole thing gets into morals and things of that sort and it's not like you're just trying to be like i'm a i'm not going to listen to anybody it's more like yeah. just something in your head like you could already be going i'm going to go get my shot and then someone comes up to you and goes hey you better get your shot you're like hey you know what i want to chill back yeah yeah Yeah, that's exactly it it's like um to give you like a good sort of analogy to it i think um it's like um harry potter right like harry potter is like really popular you know the books are really popular the films are really popular i deliberately go out of my way to not watch it or read it or have any (laughs) it's just because people like it so i'm like that with like you know almost everything in life it's like the things i like that i like them just because other people don't like them <laughs> that's like me and force gump it's like some kind of like you know that's its own like sort of like psychological problem i don't know um but anyway so just to kind of <laughs> to get back to so i never had the vaccine and to get into japan for a long time you had to be vaccinated um so they changed the rules so that you could get in with a negative test uh so that meant that we could go back and visit. So that we went back and visited in uh, like Christmas time, just last year. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, Japan's a weird thing because they never had a lockdown. They never had like, you know, kind of, you must stay at home, that kind of thing. 
Um, and businesses were allowed to stay open for most of the, the whole pandemic, you know, for most of the country. The only thing is that um, Japanese people just wear masks now all the time. You know, just um, it's changed a little bit now. They're starting to wear them less now. But basically from March 2020 through to, you know, March 2023, apart from when they're at home, it's just like all masks all the time. No matter how old you are, even if you're like a toddler, you know, <laughs> um, in school, in the office, driving around in your car, literally every moment of the day, unless you're sitting down to eat at a restaurant, wearing a mask. So they went really like all in on the masks. Um, Is that so just kind a of weird. social like a weird... thing? Like, so yeah, yeah, because yeah. they used to wear masks before. So like even when I was living there back in, you know, I started living there in 2003. Um, and even then you would wear a mask or well, I didn't ever did, but Japanese people would wear masks if they had a cold or if they had the flu. Because the idea, the, the way they reason it is that, you know, the mask stops you from passing on your germs to other people. So it's polite to wear a mask if you've got a cold or something. So you're not passing it on. So that was always in like Japanese culture, like, you know, dating back, like, you know, I think that, I think that all started at the start of the 20th century when there was the Spanish flu. I think that's when the practice started and they've kept on doing it ever since. So wearing masks is kind of like not all that unusual in Japan, you know, just traditionally. But just with COVID, they just went all in. It was just, you know, masks are the way out of this. Masks, <laughs> you know, that's the way we're going to beat this is masks. So that was a kind of big difference, big cultural difference. It was like no lockdowns, no closed businesses, but yeah, masks, masks, masks. The evolution of that, though, because in the beginning, if they're wearing a mask to not get someone else sick, which is a good, sure. Um, but then it became probably what it is now, which is more about not trying to contract a sickness. Yeah, yeah, so, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 big time. And my mother-in-law, you know, if, if you talk to my mother-in-law or the other sort of like members of my wife's family, and my wife as well, to be honest with you, they would say, because they're Japanese, oh yeah, masks, it, it's indisputable that masks will work. You know, <laughs> if you wear a mask, then you will be protected. <laughs> Ignoring the fact that like everyone's in masks all the time and COVID's like spreading just, <laughs> just as much as it does anywhere else. Um, but yeah, they're just convinced that it works somehow. Um, but so I, I kind of given up, like there's no point in sort of um, arguing about it because you just... At the end of the day, you're not going to convince anybody. It's the same way here, like, you know, talking to people about the vaccines. You know, my mum has got, you know, she's she just recently got another booster. And I was saying to her, you know, why are you doing that? Like, what's the point now? You've already had COVID. She's had COVID like two or three times and it's been fine. So why are you having another vaccine? You, you, why is it necessary? But as soon as you start opening that door, you just get this resistance and you just realize like, okay, I'm just going to come across as an asshole if I pursue this. So I'm just going <laughs> to just leave it alone. You know, it's not worth raising the issue. It's not worth discussing it anymore. But um, what was yeah. your, um, I guess, out of mass lockdowns, like what was your first, like, what was your, like, I, I know you mentioned a little bit about be free about going overseas for, you know, the pandemic experience, but like, was your first thing lockdowns? Cause to me, lockdowns, as soon as that came out was when I really started kind of looking in and trying to tell people like, this is against our constitutional rights. I mean, we are human beings. We can't be locked inside of our houses. There's no, and if you make a, if you make a conclusion, like jumping into like, it's similar to like China with like a social credit system, people would go, Hey, we're not China. I was like, it's not what I'm saying, but everything starts somewhere and then it leads somewhere else. That credit system started because there's a lot of people in China to police and the police, I think, go home after a certain time. So it was just a way to incentivize people to, you know, work with that system a little bit. And then it's gone out of control to what it is now, which is just like you can rat on anybody and if you jaywalk, whatever. 
I just say it starts somewhere. And even trying to sell sales pitch like I just did, people go, hey, we're not China. I was like, that's not the point of this. What I'm saying is, where does this go from here? What's going to happen next? And then you get to where stores were saying you couldn't come in unless you're wearing a mask. And that, thank God that dropped because um, that was like there was a huge thing where like you had to be vaccinated to go to a store. I was like, OK, well, at this point, I'm being forced to do it or I'm not going to be able to function and ever leave my house. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, the vaccine thing never happened here, like the vaccine passports and stuff. But yeah, to, to answer your question, yeah, like right from, I never for one moment thought that lockdowns were a good idea. You know, I'm not one of these people who thought at the beginning, oh yeah, this is a good idea, and then gradually became more skeptical. From day one, I was just, this is, I just thought this is crazy. Like, what are people doing? It was like um, the analogy I used. I was chatting to a friend um, at the time. Was like. You know, imagine you're a lemming and you're watching all of the other lemmings just going and jumping off a cliff and you're thinking to yourself, why are you doing this? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, why are you doing this? <laughs> it was just because I was looking at the the um, the scientific um, literature on COVID, like right from the beginning, you know, just like, okay, because first of all, it hit China, obviously. Then it was Italy, Spain, France. New York, right? These were like the main areas where it just started to to grow. Certainly before it was really kind of spreading in the UK, it was spreading in those areas. And so I was looking at the the literature coming from those uh, those parts of the world, and it was all exactly the same. It was who's dying from this? Well, the modal death is someone who's in their mid seventies, mid to late seventies, has two like serious comorbidities as well. Um. So I was looking at that and I was thinking to myself, well, okay, that means unless you're old, unless you're elderly, you don't really have to worry for yourself, your personal safety. And also all we have to do is protect the elderly, right? So why don't we just have a system whereby elderly people can be protected? Surely it's not beyond our intelligence to think of that kind of a, a system, whatever that might be. And the rest of us can go on our with our lives. Surely that's possible to do. And that's going to be less costly, less tricky, less invasive than just saying, right, everybody has to <laughs> stay at home all the time. So, yeah, it just didn't make any sense to me that this was the option that we were going for. I just couldn't understand it. And, you know, just looking at the data, it just didn't make any sense to me. So right from the start, I was thinking to myself, yeah, this is just weird. This is just people either going crazy, like just complete, like, you know, losing their minds, not being reasonable or um there's something going on that they're just not telling us you know there's something happening in the background that we're, we're not being told so i mean still i basically think you know i'm not a conspiracy theorist i don't i don't think this was all deliberate i think it was purely kind of like foolishness on the part of politicians not really understanding the science not really understanding the situation not really thinking things through properly and listening too much to like a small number of very, very like vocal scientists who are saying you've got to lock down, you've got to lock down, you've got to lock down. So I think it was kind of a combination of those things that that, that caused it. But um, it's um, it goes to show kind of like how uh, you know you might think that the people who are in charge are intelligent, well-educated people who know what they're doing, but they're really not. You know, it was really kind of um, it really opened my eyes to that. Uh, aspect of things, the whole experience, you know, it's just like how incompetent these people are. You just haven't got a clue what they're doing.
I, I, I think my thought was, I, I think at the beginning, they definitely didn't know what was going on. And it was kind of like just a panic, like how we always do a torch the field method by everyone go inside your house. We're going to do this for a little while and then two weeks to slow the spread and all that. But then eventually, like, I mean, I don't go into the world population control like a lot of people do. That's where I draw the line. But there is a serious thing where some of these people really started getting something from the power grab here. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And no about that. It, I mean, yeah. it became a little bit to the point where I think people eventually pushed back on things, but they started going and talking about digital ID, vaccine passports. I had friends that were faking vaccine passports. And I was like, I'm not even going to do that. That There's no point in do. You might as well just get the shot because what happens if you get found out and then you get in some real serious trouble? But the demonization amongst the population was one of the things I noticed that they really pushed hard. You know, it went from we're in this together to there are certain people that are here to help you and there's certain people that are that want to get you sick. And that's like that was not what this discussion should have been about. No, no, definitely not. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it was really um, it was really divisive and it was really kind of like. Uh, yeah, it was uh, you're, you're right that they. There were some, it was just obvious, like, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Matt Hancock, who's the, uh, he's a politician over here, who's the, um, he was the Secretary of State for Health. So he was kind of like the person, not exactly like Anthony Fauci, because Fauci was like a scientist, right? Matt Hancock's like a politician, but he was in charge scientist. of- Scientist. Yeah, scientist. Just saying. <laughs> Matt Hancock's was like in, in charge of, um, you know, the health system, basically. He's the elected minister who's in charge of that. So, um he was just, it was just so clear. Like you could just see every time he spoke on TV or in parliament, you could just see it in his eyes that he was loving it. You know, just being able to tell people what to do, boss people around. It was just like all his dreams come true. You know, I'm in charge and I get to tell people what to do. It was just like, <laughs> did you have anybody you over there that was, why... did you have anybody over there that was really saying the right message? Like I, I know, like a lot, the only person I know about from overseas that was saying anything really was about Boris Johnson, and then everyone lit him up on Twitter, and everybody lit him up, and you know wanted him out. So I don't know if he did anything good, but I'd have to feel like with every single person you hear them out, and then trying to hear what they're saying, and if you're talking about controlling aspects of things, I mean, look, our Fauci, the guy over here, you know, you could see it in his eyes as well too. He wanted that. He really loved the attention thing. It's same thing with the AIDS pandemic that he was a part of as well too. He loved being the voice of that one, and he said exactly what he did with this one so i get that i'm there on the power control thing i'm just curious if you guys had anybody that was actually saying anything that was getting demonized but kind of made sense when you looked at it yeah so boris johnson was a kind of funny figure because um he's like um like you could tell that his instincts were actually the right ones from my point of view which was let's just let people deal with it the way that they think is best, right? Let's leave people in the population alone to, to you know, have their own kind of solutions. We, the government doesn't need to be ordering people to stay at home. Like that was his kind of gut instinct. But the problem was he was surrounded by other people in the government who were much more keen on lockdowns. And also I think fundamentally, he's just not a very brave, like courageous politician, you know? So he just kind of, in the end, he went with the flow and did what was kind of expected. So that's why, and then he eventually kind of embraced the lockdowns, but then he got COVID early on um, as well. And I think that maybe possibly influenced the way he was looking at things because he was like quite badly ill. So I don't know if that maybe made him take things more seriously than he had been doing previously. But the, the real, um, the only people who were talking any sense at the start of the whole thing 
were um, a couple of journalists. So there's one, I don't know, have you heard of Peter Hitchens? I've heard the name before. He's quite, a, he was the brother of Christopher Hitchens, who you might have heard of, who um, was quite famous sort of like 20 years ago, um, but died, you know, quite a long time ago. But so this guy, Peter Hitchens is his brother, but he's very, um, he's like quite a contrarian kind of guy. He's always willing to go against the mainstream. So he was speaking out against it. And there was a judge on a, a retired Supreme Court judge called Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, who was also speaking out about it. Um, but there were literally just like, you know, very like two or three people in the public square who were willing to say, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. You know, I would say 95% of the media was in favor of lockdowns, you know, and actually were wanting like harsher, like stricter lockdowns all the time. Um, it was pretty unanimous. Yeah. And people in the country were like pretty unanimous as well. You know, you'd go out on the street and you would see nobody, like literally everybody would be at home. You know, it was really, really like spooky. It was like, you know, like a zombie apocalypse movie or something like you would go outside and it would just be like silent, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the day. It was really, really strange. No cars, nothing, you know, just, uh, yeah, deadly silence. What are your yeah. thoughts on the media? I mean, like, I know about, like, operations over here, like Operation Mockingbird was a complicit thing that the media did to really pitch the government's narrative. And it says it only ended after three months, but I have documents that'll prove that it went a little bit longer than three months. Um, like, leads into some of our biggest historical controversies in, like, the 60s and 70s. But all the media, they weren't even bothered bothering just asking anybody who had maybe a different viewpoint of like hey what's your science on this i mean there's a video of carrie mullis from i think 2018 or something like that where he's talking about he's the creator of the pcr test he talks about anthony fauci he talks about a bunch of people and it was just an independent reporter you can't find that link anywhere i think you can find it like on an off site but it's been banned from youtube and I'm like, how come the media hasn't bothered to like reach out to anybody who either worked with them or talked with them or did anything like that? Because he died before the pandemic happened. But no, the media was just playing that death count of the COVID numbers over and over again. I go, this is not helping people. Yeah, right. Well, I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, it basically for a long time, the media here, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, it's very similar, I gather, to what's been going on in the United States, which is like. So in, in the US, you've got Fox, which is the one kind of like mainstream conservative outlet, right? But then apart from that, all of the media is basically kind of like left oriented. And it's the same is true here. Like you've got newspapers like the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph, which are kind of right wing, kind of like, you know, right of center. But pretty much everything else has kind of oriented itself kind of towards the left. And I think what happened in 2016 was you know, Donald Trump got elected and uh, Britain left the European Union, right? We had the Brexit referendum. And left-wing journalists basically lost the plot and have uh, got it into their heads that if Donald Trump thinks something or says something, then we have to just think the opposite, right? Whatever it is, <laughs> he must be wrong. He's evil, he's bad. So anything that he thinks or says, we think the opposite, right? The same thing was true in, in, in the UK with Boris Johnson, because Boris Johnson was in the, the, basically the most prominent figure in the Brexit campaign, right? So anything Boris Johnson does or says is bad and wrong, and we have to do the opposite. So at the start of the, the COVID thing, 
I think Donald Trump and Boris Johnson were both of a similar idea, which was, you know, we're not going to take this as seriously as they're doing in China. It's not that big of a deal, you know, kind of like resistant to the idea of lockdowns. And that immediately set the tone in the media that, okay, well, they're saying that, so we have to think the opposite, right? Our job is to explain why <laughs> lockdowns are brilliant, lockdowns are wonderful, lockdown is the best thing ever, because that puts us in opposition to what Boris Johnson and Donald Trump were initially kind of thinking, right? Now, ultimately, Trump and Boris Johnson ended up adopting a lockdown-friendly kind of a posture, right? And eventually kind of put in place a lot of emergency measures. But at the beginning they had an instinct that they wanted to kind of err on the side of freedom. And so that meant the media establishment just went in the opposite direction. And so you just got this narrative, right, that, that you know, this is the terrible plague, it's going to kill us all unless we lock down, you know, it's evil. <laughs> if you don't lock down, it's evil if you don't wear masks, it's evil if you don't have vaccines, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. It was almost, it almost had like a kind of like self perpetuating kind of a, a tendency to it. Which is interesting to me because you would think that the left stuff would be less restrictions and less forcing people yeah, into exactly. positions yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it is weird, but it's kind of um, yeah, it's weird when you think about it in that way. But I think, I mean, you've got to also remember that, you know, the right doesn't have like a monopoly on dictatorship and authoritarianism, right? In history, like <laughs> there've been just as many left wing like authoritarian regimes as there have been right wing ones. So being in favor of authoritarianism isn't really a left-right issue. It's it's kind of, it's more, I think the issue is, do you have people in society who think they know best and think that they, that entitles them to tell everyone else what to do? And that's like a big um, feature of modern government, I think, and, and also the way that the media and the universities work is this idea that you can get these experts in power, they will have all of the information, they'll have the knowledge, and they'll just tell everyone else what to do. And everyone else ought to just follow what they they tell them because they're the experts. You see that kind of theme really, really strongly playing out in COVID, but it's also just all over the place in kind of other areas as well. You know, this idea that, yeah, the experts are in charge, the technocrats are in charge, they know what they're doing. They're going to tell the rest of us what to do and we're just going to agree and we're just going to follow along. Um, I think that like really pushed that over the cliff when it came to... Um people questioning experts more. I came across like I was in, I'm interested in learning where you found your research in the beginning because I, everything I was coming across, there was nothing about anything. They were all saying lockdowns were good and all this. I think when I stopped checking it and I started going to like ResearchGate and things overseas and especially stuff coming out of Sweden was because there was an article that said that if you're a smoker, I swear, I swear to God, there was an article that says, if you're a smoker, you're less likely to contract COVID. Yeah, I think I might have read the same article. Yeah. And yeah. then I'm like, fucking it. Hooray, I vape my ass off. And um, so I was like, oh, look. And I like I showed like my mom this and I was like, hey, check this out. And then I think she picked up cigarettes at some point. Um, but then there was an article that came out like a month later that said actually you're more susceptible to COVID if you smoke cigarettes. And I'm like, there's the that's what sounds a little bit more accurate. And then I kind of started looking at it, like they were talking about maybe CB C D oh, what is it? C B D gummies could help with certain things of COVID. I've seen articles all like this, I swear to you. And I was like, none of this is making sense anymore, but it just says experts say. And I was like, 
oh my God. I was like, uh, uh, like for me questioning this, a lot of people weren't doing this. A lot of people are like experts say you should take as many CBD gummies as possible. And they were just doing all this other type of stuff where I start going. It's funny to me because I trust, I don't trust any experts now just because of the pandemic. And I didn't really trust a whole lot of that. I have to do my own research or be able to look at the study for myself before I just read a headline that says experts. I'm like, who's your expert? Um, but everybody else, I think at this point, which is like experts say this, experts say this, experts say that. I was like, that's funny how you like those experts, but not the other experts that are sharing a different perspective. And then that got tossed into right wing extremism or conspiracy theories. I was like, that's not what that is at all. I was like, it's like on Brownstone, it comes off kind of like a little bit like a conservative site a little bit just because I see some authors there. But I start talking to them. Someone's like, no, I'm a left. I'm Democrat. But I just I look at this and I'm like, oh, it's a libertarian site. It has both sides on there, but it's really about the government and like transparency amongst it, but also kind of like you can't impede on our rights as individuals to and which I get. But putting the guise of saying safety for others is the I, I wouldn't say it's a really crappy way of putting it, but the way they did that was like a low gut punch. Like you're going to make other people feel bad about themselves because they want to go outside to go have some sunlight. And you're saying that they're killing somebody by doing that. And it gained this kill grandma narrative. Yeah. yeah, yeah so I said yeah. a lot there, but I mean, what's your thoughts on just experts say, I feel like everyone now doesn't. Yeah, really I totally. Yeah, I agree. And it's kind of, it's funny because, um, yeah, I mean, I, but that goes back further though, because that was something that, um, happened a lot during the Brexit referendum, the build up to the, the the vote to leave the European Union. Like we were constantly being told, <clears throat> it's all over the news all the time. Oh, economists say that if the UK leaves the European Union, GDP is going to go down by this amount, or you know, every family is going to lose income, you know, to the tune of whatever it, you know, however much money. So there's this constant stream of like experts say this, experts say this, experts say this. <laughs> And I remember, you know, and obviously I was a supporter of, of leaving the European Union. So I'd hear all this and I would think to myself, uh, well, I don't really think that that's true. Well, A, I don't think it's true, but also B, even if it is true, whatever the experts say doesn't just automatically mean that we should do what they say, right? Even if what they say is true, right? What they say might, what they are saying might be true, but that doesn't mean you have to follow it because there might be other things to consider that the experts aren't themselves considering right like for example maybe leaving the european union will make the economy grow less quickly but it might still be worth doing because it allows us to gain our independence from the european union and therefore kind of rethink the way our politics works you know rethink our kind of national sovereignty, et cetera, et cetera. It's got nothing really to do with economics. And the same thing is true with the experts, you know, what the experts were saying about COVID, you know, I mean, I don't think a lot of what they were saying were true, but let's, let's say, for example, um, it's true that masks work. Right? Let's say that, you know, a lot of the experts were saying you have to wear a mask because masks do stop the spread of COVID to a certain extent. Let's say that's true. Let's grant them that. That still doesn't mean that you should have to wear masks all the time because <laughs> there are other things to consider, right? Like, for example, if kids are wearing masks all the time, they're not going to learn how to talk properly. They're not going to learn how to socialize properly because then you need to see people's faces. You've also got the question of, well, how's that going to affect people's mental health? If all the time they can't see other people's faces, they can't see people smiling. What's the effect of that on society, right? 
the fact that no one can really just have a normal conversation with each other. How does that affect people? How does the fact that how does that affect their mental health and how does that affect their physical health? So it's like you've got this kind of narrative of like, well, the experts say this, right? And I was skeptical about that in itself. Like maybe the experts are wrong, but even if the experts are right, that still doesn't dictate how you should behave, right? You still need to think about other factors that the experts aren't considering. But nowhere in the media were you getting that. Everything, everything in the media was, well, the experts say this, and therefore, this means this is what we should do. It was just like, you know, A to B, right? Experts say A, we do B. It, 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 it was kind of amazing to me that that happened, but I suppose that's partly due to the way people are educated now. They're not really educated to think critically about expertise, and maybe also just people have got used to not really thinking very hard about anything, really. <laughs> <laughs> because that's they're, very quite true. Used to, they're quite used to being kind of like entertained you know it's like um so the way i think about it is you know you, you can at any time of the day or night you know you've got nothing to do you're bored what can you do okay go on youtube go on netflix instantly you just like okay you've got entertainment so people have got into this really lazy habit of just not really thinking about anything like anytime you, you're in a position where you might have to think about something You've got a distraction. You've got something that you can just stream on your device. You've got a phone you can look at. You can be WhatsApping somebody. You, you, people have kind of like trained themselves out of the habit of just thinking things through. You know, just <laughs> I don't think it's just that simple. You know, just people have got used to not thinking. I saw it when we came out of lockdowns and people stopped looking both ways before they crossed the street. The number of people in the beginning that were just walking out and I was like, holy, I just slam on my brakes and just be like, Do you, are you paying attention? You have a kid in your hand. Thank God I'm actually paying attention. Um, but a, a lot of people just, people even had to relearn how to talk. Um, and when I mean that, I don't just mean kids. I just mean adults that would come up and be like, hello. And you're like, hi. And they're like, I'm like, good, good morning. And they're like, oh my God, I haven't seen a person in years. And they just start going and telling me their life story. I'm like, Jesus. And they answer all their own questions. Like, uh, eh, you know, they'll start having a conversation with themselves. And I'm just sitting there like, I didn't even say anything. And the person's just going and answering their own questions. But there's a bunch of things. But when it came to, I guess the pressure of the mass on kids, I always heard the social thing. And I think everyone was on board with saving the kids and everything like that. But as soon as they put out the social thing about um, the kids aren't gonna be able to read faces and all this, I was like, you're now appealing to the crowd that has the kids. What about the people that should also be caring about the children, but are going to need some other things in there. And I recently heard of like, kids don't know sanitation. So obviously they drop their mask on the ground, they put it back on their face. That's something that should have been researched into and should have been thought of by these health officials to realize the dangers of putting masks on kids as well too, besides the social thing. Because then it gets me in there who doesn't have kids. I already care about children, but I also, I don't know the whole mask and social thing as much as maybe someone else might know who might have a kid and realize how important it is to see their face. Um, but once the vaccines for kids, finally, I think when they started saying that your kids can now get a vaccine, and it was a little bit before they really started hammering it down, like you need to get your kids vaccinated. Teachers were even talking to kids about getting them vaccinated. And parents, I mean, a lot of people started being like, I'm going to homeschool my kid. This is ridiculous. Even Sesame Street, Dr. Sanjay Gupta went on there and said, talking about the shot, they did a whole episode on it. I feel like that 
pressure of, you know, mass on kids, it really started to kind of let back a little bit when the vaccines were really starting to be pushed. They found a way to do it without people immediately snapping because everyone goes blind. It's like a human instinct when it's anything with kids. There's no rationale that comes into the conversation anymore. It's immediately like we got to do whatever they say to protect these. And that's exactly what we did with our fear in the pandemic and lockdowns. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. There, there was a big. Yeah. The children thing was was kind of interesting because well, over here, I should say one of the good things was that they never made masking um, mandatory for kids. So you only had to wear a mask if you were aged 11 or older, which is bad in itself, but um, young kids didn't have to wear masks and, and none of them did really. So that that was good. It was good from my perspective because at the time, you know, the first lockdown in 2020, I had a daughter who was just about to turn three and I was really, really worried about the impact on her of the lockdown because as a parent, you can see how important it is for your child to have social interactions with other kids and to be able to play and things like that. And you can see how important that is. And to have that being like snatched away from you is really uh, horrible. Like um, that was the number one thing that I was worried about, which is like, what's the effect that this is going to have on my my child, right? Um, so I was glad they never had to wear masks. And I'm, I feel so sorry for the parents in places in America where they forced them to wear masks, you know, right from the age of, you know, I've seen videos of kids in like daycare, you know, they're like two years old and they're being forced to wear a mask. It's like, Jesus, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> how can you possibly like think that that's a sensible thing to do? Um, so the, the, the kids, but the way the kids were kind of like treated was strange because on the one hand there was this, um, narrative of like well we need to protect children right so um like as you pointed out you know people kind of like as soon as you mention a threat to children people just go crazy and just like lose reason yeah that's certainly true but on the other hand there was this kind of motive of well children aren't really that important you know we, it's okay for them to lose years and years of schooling it's okay for if they have to wear masks what's important is stopping the spread of the virus, right? We can kind of like sacrifice the interests of children because there's something bigger at stake, which is we need to stop the virus from spreading. So yeah, like two different kind of, two different ways kids were treated, I guess, or two different narratives about children. The, the second narrative seems a lot like someone who's an adult who hasn't had the chance to have kids yet or didn't want kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that is a big part of it. You know, there, that is a big part of it. There are a lot of people who, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's actually a big problem, I think, in um, in our societies, actually, is like there are an awful lot of adults, you know, in their 30s or 40s who don't have kids and don't really think about the impact of things on kids. Um. And I'm not blaming them, you know, I'm not sort of judging people for not having children. People have got the reasons for that, but it does affect the way you view the world. And once you have kids, it changes how you view the world. You start thinking about things more holistically. I think once you've had children, you start Dude, thinking. About I, I can speak from more. personal experience. I know friends of mine who used to be like hardcore left, like would throw paint on people and do stuff like that. And then when they had kids, they're the complete opposite, all about God and Republican style views. And I'm just like, man, you guys did a complete 180 after you had your kids. And it was like, to me, like I'm a, I'm a probably, I'm a more deep state believer just because I've seen so much through history. And then I've also kind of looked at this pandemic a little bit and realized that there's obviously a control of power. And I don't believe in the two party system at all. I think it's complete like crap, 
Um, but this seemed a little bit deeper to me and, you know, the narratives, the things that were being squeezed on, I mean, when it came to our fear was insane to the point now where we have dedicated sites. And I think you wrote about this, which was the GDI, but we have one over here. It's called PolitiFact and it has a little scanner and it's filled with a bunch of journalists, but they just go on to certain things that get said and say hundred percent false pants on fire, or they say hundred percent true. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, but what's your bias? And like, we don't have a bias. It's like, everybody's got a bias. I guarantee you, I have one and you can probably find it at some point, but I were just, you know, people weren't saying that, but everyone was looking for independent media, especially now everyone's looking for that. And to be honest, I haven't found a site that really shares an independent voice, even like the intercept, which is a highly respected journalistic website that I go to because it really never tries to dive into the politics, just the actual like facts of the matter. But I know some of these journalists and I've spoken to some of these journalists and I'm like, you definitely have a bias, man. Like I trust your work, but at the same time, just because I like it doesn't mean I ha- like, you know, I should be running like it's fact. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The idea that no one has a bias, that, that, that um, you can escape having a bias is completely wrong. Like, yeah, you're right. Everybody has a bias, right? Even, even just at the level of like what you're interested in, like and what you're reporting on, right? Like just, just in the act of choosing something to report on, the reason why you got interested in that is because you have a bias towards that topic as an area of interest, right? It's like, okay, you know, if I'm a journalist, okay, tomorrow I could write a story about um, horse racing, or I could write a story about um, politics, or I could write a story about, um, I don't know, uh, technology, science and technology. Okay, I'm going to do the one about science and science and technology, because I'm biased towards that. That's, that's something I'm interested in. Right. So even at that level, just at the level of choosing what you write about, you're biased. Right. So you can't escape bias. It's always going to be there. And those fact checking websites, I mean, it's just transparent what their bias is. You just have to go on their websites and look at what they say and the kind of um the judgments that they they exercise on on sites. You know, that the the GDI is the classic example. You know, you go go on the GDI, the global disinformation index, it's called. It's new to me. I only came across it from yeah, the article. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's because it's a British. They they did well. They make a big point of saying they don't um, they don't do anything involving um, like American election coverage. Um, so they make a big point of saying that. But <laughs> they basically they they what they do is so they'll go to like a media market. So let's say um, like the one I'm most familiar with that they've done apart from the UK is Japan, obviously, right? So what they do is. They said, we're going to write a report about the media market in Japan, and we're going to identify these different media outlets, like these newspapers and these websites. And we're going to say basically whether they're trustworthy or not and give them a mark, you know, kind of out of 100. You know, 100, like exactly like you said, right? Like 100 being everything they say is true and zero being your pants are on fire, right? And, you know, it's be in the middle, right, somewhere. And all you need to do is just look at the list of them. You know, the way that they rank the websites and it's like, okay, well, what's number one? What's the most trustworthy news source? Well, it's the kind of like left wing, sort of left of center, like mainstream newspaper in Japan, which is called the Asahi Shimbun, right? That That's number one. <laughs> okay, that's the most trustworthy. Coincidentally, it's the one that we, you know, conforms exactly with our views. <laughs> and then, you know, you go down the list and it's like they get progressively more right wing <laughs> as you go like less and less trustworthy. It's like... The bias is just like so obvious, you know, it's just like as plain as like the nose on your face, what the bias is. Um, and yet they present themselves as doing this like, you know, oh, yes, we're against disinformation. It's just um, disinformation doesn't 
I mean, I don't know if you read that famous article that um, a guy called Jacob Siegel wrote. It's called 13 Ways of... No, no, sorry. It's called um, something like The Guide to the Hoax of the Century, something like that. I'll send you a link to it anyway. It's really worth, it's worth like reading or listening to it if you'd rather listen to it. It's um, So he basically, he goes through and explains how this kind of disinformation concept you know, kind of came about and the history of it. It's really, really interesting. But he makes the point that, you know, you're making a mistake if you try to define disinformation or misinformation or, you know, and, and try and explain what it is. Because it, it it's not really like a, scientific idea it's not like something that um has an accepted definition that's in the dictionary all disinformation means is this is something that the, te the technocracy don't want you to talk about <laughs> you know it's it, that, that's basically what it boils down to you know if something is if we disagree with something it's disinformation and if we agree with it it's not you know that, that that's, that's the only definition you really need to uh need to understand it was more apparent of that in the beginning, but then when it came later, like what it is today, it's now lumped into Russian disinformation. Like everything is a political thing and it's from another country trying to sow seeds of doubt into this country, especially in the United States. That's a big thing now. I'm starting to see that trend more about like stuff that would be considered hardcore right wing would be now like Russian disinformation. And I had studied that long ago on my show. So when I saw that disinformation word pop up, the new one that came up to me was like misinformation, which was like, it's not on purpose for a political game, but it's just an accidental slip up of words. So I'm like, so like someone misspoke or something like that, but then it became like everything. Oh, that's a misinformation scandal. Yeah, that's it's a misinformation. Yeah. We need to control it. Yeah. It's like, um, Oh, sorry. Go on. Yeah, I was interested. now it, the, the misinformation and disinformation words. You can't even tell the two apart now. Like one's, I guess, intentional, and the one's supposed to be accidental. But damn it, it's like a broad brush. They just swipe it on anything they want. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the, the the funny thing about it is that the global disinformation index have now come up with this other category, which they call. I don't know if you've heard of it, but they call it malinformation, or um, sometimes they call it adversarial narratives. And what that means is information which is true. Right, but which misrepresents reality in some way. So it's like it's information which is true, but which is kind of like selective, like you're picking and choosing. So even like presenting information which is factually true can still now be censored on the basis that it's malinformation because it's true, but at the same time somehow misleading. It's like they just make it up as they go along because it's just all about just controlling what you can and can't say. You know, it's it's that simple. There are some things they don't want you to say and they censor it. And there are some things which they're okay with you saying and which they don't censor. So it's a mistake to kind of get into the trap of wondering about, okay, is what I'm about to say accurate or not? It's not really about whether it's accurate. It's just about whether they like it or not. I, I mean, I'm going to ask you this question, but would you prefer that they said something or maybe their best opinion on something rather than not give you any answers to any of your questions at all? Like the reason why I do my show the way I do this with like no really structure, we're kind of just freebasing and have a conversation because I get to learn more about you and you're talking to me like a human being. I reached out to Fauci since the beginning of the pandemic and he's had the same auto reply email there for the past three years now, but he's more than happy to go onto something where they toss some softball questions when I'm just generally going to ask you know, I'm okay if someone tells me I don't know. 
thank you. I don't know either. Let's be in the boat together. Holy shit. But everyone was like giving the, either a judgment or whatever they had already written down as a script, or they just wouldn't say anything. And I go, it's even worse because giving me your best opinion, like Dr. Drew is a great example. He was a hundred percent like, get your shot when it comes out all this. Now he's so anti against it. And he's like recommending a bunch of stuff where he did the complete 180. I was like, Okay, people accepted his opinion in the beginning, and now people that used to accept his opinion won't even mention his name and don't like it when you bring it up. And I go, again, we can't pick and choose on this. I feel like if someone tells me in my best opinion, my personal perspective, what I'm going to be doing with my family and my, you know, every, me, this is what I'm going to do. I put, I would rather prefer that as an answer than you just telling me, you know, I, if I ask you about, hey, should we wear a mask? Or I get your shot. I'm like, that's not my question. My question, should I wear a mask? Get your shot. I'm like, damn, like you're not even listening to me at this point. Would you like a sandwich and like get your shot? I'm like, turkey <laughs> or whole grain? I don't know what you want, man. Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, we've got a huge problem with just um, the way that politicians in particular, not just politicians, people like, you know, health experts and everybody else. There's a real issue with them not being honest and straightforward in the way that they communicate right that's a huge huge problem because people can sense when that's happening right as you or i can you know you, you know that um you know when you when someone is speaking and they're not well they're either avoiding telling the truth or they're telling you something that isn't true right we we can all sense it and the more our politicians do it the less we trust them and so you've got this huge gap now where people are so mistrustful of politicians and so mistrustful of experts that it's becoming really difficult for politicians to get anything done because, you know, the whole point of a politician really is to try to persuade people that their viewpoint is the right one, right? Or to persuade, you know, kind of the other side, to persuade people across the aisle to come on board with a, a, a plan that they want to implement, a policy that they want to implement, Right. So the more politicians lie, the less honest they are, the less easy it becomes or the more difficult it becomes to persuade somebody from the other side to agree with them, to cooperate with them. The harder it is to get anything done and the worse that the, the kind of governance system becomes as a result of that. So it's becoming a really, really big issue. And you're absolutely right. You know, I think like the, the world is crying out for leaders who will just speak in a normal way, a straightforward way, an honest way. Admit when, admit when they're wrong, um, you know, say when they've changed their mind and just say that they don't know things. And I think that was part of the appeal. I mean, I don't know about, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump at all, really. Um, certainly not like his personality, although I think he can be funny sometimes. But I think something of the appeal of Donald Trump to, to the people who voted for him was that it was kind of like just what you see is what you get, right? He, he, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, I don't think he tells the truth like 100% of the time, <laughs> you know, he often doesn't tell the truth. But it was just kind of like you got the sense from him that like, yeah, this he's not like presenting like a false image of himself. It's just like, you know, he is who he is and just like, you know, take it or leave it, right? Well, you just you just asked people the question, do you prefer like when Fauci said that I had so many moments I wanted to stop Trump on spreading misinformation, but I just kind of had to stand there. And I was like, I don't trust a single thing now that you say the fact that you wouldn't step up and you wouldn't do your integrity and be like, hey, man, that's not right. Don't say that on the microphone. That's who I want. I don't want someone that's just going to sit there and be like, 
What happens if that guy would have won again? And then you would have had another four years and you would have, which kept bit your tongue the whole time. Yeah. 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 Like that, that, that brings people. Cause whenever you start talking about Trump, people think that you have to immediately denounce them or it just becomes, and I'm like, I'm not a Trumper at all. I don't like Trump or Biden, but the fact that nobody is going to say anything about certain flaws or certain errors. And they just feel like, Oh, keep my job or keep my mouth shut. I don't believe that I, then I can't trust your work anymore at yeah, that point. Yeah. 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 I agree with you. And it's really different to how, um, well, it's like people think so, like in your daily life, like, okay, you're thinking like the place where you work, right? Your boss, the number, well, the best bosses that you've had probably in your life, you know, in your working life have been people who've been honest with you and open, right? That's like a really, really important characteristic in a leader, like a good leader just is upfront about saying, you know, for example, I don't know what we should do, but I think we should do X, Y, or Z because of the following reasons, right? Or, um, you know, I made a decision and it was wrong. It's had bad consequences. So I've changed my mind and we're going to do something different. If someone that can say that to you and just has the confidence and the kind of, um, yeah, just like the openness to be like that, then you just instantly trust them more, right? Because you can just see that they're a human being and you can see that they're, they've got like a thought process that's going on inside their mind and they're not just kind of um, expecting you to just do what they say simply because they're in charge. So that's what good leaders do. They make decisions, but they're never like, it's never just, well, I've made this decision and you have to do it. And that's because I'm the leader, right? That's not what a good leader does. A good leader makes decisions, but they explain the rationale, they admit when they're wrong, they change their mind if they have to, and they're open about having changed their mind. So that we should expect the same thing in our politicians and in, you know, our kind of, yes, our expert class, right? We shouldn't expect of them this kind of being right all the time and, and kind of disguising when they're wrong and avoiding admitting that they're wrong. What we should expect of them is what you would expect from your boss in the gym where you work or what I should expect from my boss or, you know, just ordinary people who we meet in our lives who are, you know, good leaders or in good leadership positions. We shouldn't have rejected the idea of individual thought mm. when it came to someone like if I bring up a really good point or a really if I say something that could be you could put that damn thing in a history book, which at times I got my moments, let me tell you, but I say it. And someone who's older than me goes, you're too young. You don't know. And that immediately gets devalued. I was like, would it weigh more if I was 97 years old saying it? Like that's kind of makes you question things a little bit more. Like when you really start looking at like, if you have something that could be an Occam's razor type deal that happened during the pandemic, that's just laughable if you even talk about it, but we did it. People didn't question because it, it was coming from experts. But if one person who was just a person that was just looking at the evidence, make like, these numbers don't add up like a mathematician or something like that. Someone will look at it and be like, I'm going to trust the experts on that. It was like, where did the individual thought go? You got criticized if you were just critically thinking about something and labeled a conspiracy theorist where there's people that were deplatformed and other positions. I mean, I'm curious on what your thoughts are on just people even thinking for themselves. I think it's going to happen more now because of what we've been through with the pandemic, but the complete disregard of it in the beginning and the amount of information we could have got research-wise in certain areas that are now being looked at now that has taken three years to finally get there. I mean, ivermectin is the best example, and I don't think that drug is ever going to have a route back 
it's been demonized so much as a horse paste. That was the first time some people have even heard of that drug before. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think you're right about the, I think you're right that I think more and more people are going to start doubting kind of like mainstream narratives, let's say. That's definitely true. What's going to happen as a result of that, though, is that more and more people are going to be start being called conspiracy theorists, right? Because that's what automatically happens as soon as you start doubting the mainstream narrative on anything immediately. Well, you're you're either you're a conspiracy theorist or oh, you're purveying disinformation or misinformation. So you're going to get this increasing. I think you're going to get an increasing divergence between what ordinary people kind of say and think to each other and believe about the world. And what they're allowed to say and what is being said in kind of mainstream media and also what is being said in mainstream media about ordinary people, right? Which is going to be increasingly they're conspiracy theorists. They don't understand. They're being fooled. They're being duped. You know, they're believing misinformation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's a recipe for disaster as well, because, you know, once people start doubting, Again, once people lose trust in the media, just like they lose, they've lost trust in politicians, you get a more kind of fractured society. You're going to get people who are just kind of like in their own little echo chambers, talking to people who agree with them, believing the things that they hear in those little echo chambers and not really going outside and not really hearing alternative viewpoints. So, yeah, I'm quite pessimistic about the way things are going to go in that respect. I think you're right that people are going to start thinking a lot more and questioning a lot more. But I think that's going to lead them into, well, down rabbit holes, which um, ultimately is going to lead to a more kind of fragmented society. So, yeah, I'm kind of that's something I worry about for the future is that we're going to, we've lost. We're going to kind of lose like a cohesive culture, you know, like a, a kind of like a general social kind of cohesion that we used to have when you didn't have all that, have so many different kind of media outlets. People were kind of watching and consuming the same kind of thing. Um, and having the same kind of a national conversation, I think that's going to kind of disappear. Um, already has disappeared, really. I'm not sure that I'll end in a in a happy place. Were you surprised at them using technology, you know, for certain things during this pandemic, like digital ID and talking about like it could have gotten to a point where if we talked about more people got vaccinated, like there was only a small minority that didn't. If you didn't get it, they could have just been like, "All right, then we're going to freeze the funds in your bank account." And I know that sounds like people go, no way. I was like, look where we're headed at right now with digital currency. This is how it starts. We go there. And I mean, I talked to a guy about autonomous vehicles before, and he was mentioning like, when once we hit stage five, you'll never have to drive again. I was like, well, what happens like if I want to go use my car and I do something bad or something and I can't leave my house? He goes, yeah, if you break a law. I was like, what laws, man? There are dumb laws. Connecting to your neighbor's Wi-Fi is a law. You can't do that. And he goes, oh, well, I don't think it'll go that. I was like, it always goes there, man. You don't pay your taxes. You don't do something like that. Then you can't get to your job and you lose your job because your car won't fucking move out of the driveway. So we get to technology. And I, I you mentioned you had an interest in technology. So I'm curious, were you looking at what they were using technology-wise when it came to some of the things, whether it's just like even an advancement, like a test up the nose, but also just where it was going, digital ID, vaccine passports, you know, certain things like that really kind of scared me. And then we got to the point of shadow banning started becoming more normalized on certain people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really scary. It was really, uh, that was one of the things that really shocked me most about the whole thing, actually, was um, how we went from, you know, um, 
the world in 2019. Which, you know, all right, okay, admittedly, there were there was a lot of surveillance going on online in a kind of soft sort of a way, like Google collect, you know, everybody knows that like, you know, Google and Facebook are collecting lots of information about Do no us. evil. Do no evil. Exactly. <laughs> of course, to sell to advertisers, we all kind of knew that was happening. But the way we got, where we got to in the end, where it was like, yeah, vaccine passports. You had in Canada, the truckers convoy having their bank accounts being frozen. You had this massive move towards digital currencies, which wasn't being talked about in 2019, but suddenly is like everywhere, just in the course of like three years, right? Um, that the the way that things, firstly, the speed with which the technology itself advanced, but also the direction in which it's going, right? All about control, all about, yeah, kind of manipulating people, uh, kind of what you would call um, kind of soft power or kind of soft coercion, right? We're not going to force you to get a vaccine mandate, a vaccine passport, rather, sorry. But if you don't, you won't be able to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and that's going to happen with, I'm sure that's going to happen with central bank digital currencies. What's going to happen is they're never going to make cash outlawed. Like they're not going to make it unlawful to use cash. They're just going to make it really, really difficult. They're just going to basically say, if you choose to use cash, you're effectively not going to be able to buy anything much apart from maybe like the bare essentials of life, right? If you want to buy anything, you know, kind of easily, then you're going to have to use the central bank digital currency. Um, and the same thing is going to be true with the cars, with driverless cars, with electric cars. They're not going to ban you from driving, you know, a, a kind of traditional petrol engine car. They're just going to make it really expensive. They're going to whack huge taxes on petrol and uh, gas. They're going to, I mean, the, the latest thing in Britain, I don't know if these have appeared in America yet, is something called ultra low emissions zones or ULES, which is basically like you get an area of the city where it's designated to be an ultra low emissions zone, which means basically you can't drive there. If you drive, you have to pay this huge fee, um, you know, just to kind of drive down a street. Um, if you're driving a petrol car, a diesel car. Um, and so that it, it's not that they're banning driving, it's just that they're making it really, really expensive and really drift, like just difficult and annoying to drive. So there's this, all this kind of soft coercion going on. You know, you can see it in all these different areas. And it, the pandemic seemed like this like special kind of inflection point there, right, where everything just got way, way, way more advanced in that direction. Just this sudden like rocket fuel to this kind of way of, of governing people. Right, just kind of manipulating them and coercing them in this this soft sort of a way, and most of it comes through the deployment of technology. So, yeah, it's um it's really disturbing. It's really really worrying. It might be the most worrying elements of the the whole pandemic period. Actually, is how uh, yeah how it's kind of given rocket fuel to to that mode of governing people through technology. Yeah, I think it's really really scary. Do you think it's going and to cause people? Go on, do you think that it's going to cause people to want to learn more about technology? Like I saw a recent spark and trend in AI and I go, you know, the more we keep talking about AI technology and hopefully people will become educated on it, but a lot of people just kind of go, oh, it's a robot that's able to solve some problems. Chat GPT is a really good example. But I also go, when are they going to start using that as things to implement policies? I mean, they're already talking about using that in cyber warfare. They're talking about using that in many different things, even in our military, which is stuff that's like super extremely important. But 
directing health policy, if something says, well, an AI determined that masks were more essential, people will go, well, it's a machine. It's going to know more than a human is, and it's not going to make the errors that the humans did. I go, well, hang on a second. Even AI has bias, whoever programs that sucker. But it's the much like with the, the infection thing, when people start talking about particles and masks and fiber layers and all this type of stuff, everyone's tuned out because it at that point, their knowledge is bare minimum. It's like whenever someone adds four zeros onto a one or something, for me, I'm like, fuck, that's as high as I can count and I ain't going any higher than that. So, you know, you get to this point where people really start realizing where their knowledge is limited and hopefully that'll cause people to do more research. But I mean, what are your thoughts on the I mean, future of this thing. I mean, if we start going to more using digital technology on stuff, do you think people would want to become more educated on? Or do you think they're just going to accept it much like? I don't. I think I'm. I'm. Yeah, I'm very pessimistic about that. I think most people won't. I think most people will do exactly what you said, which is that. Oh, what am I gonna? What do I? What am I gonna have for dinner today? Okay, I'll, I'll ask ChatGPT. What should I have for dinner today? <laughs> I, I, that's what I think. That's the direction I think things are going. I, I'm really pessimistic about it. Now, um, did you gain a pessimistic perspective because of everything that you've seen? Like in the beginning, did you have a little bit of hope? I kind of was a bit hopeful that people would snap out of their stuff. It just took a little bit longer than expected. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm. Uh, yeah, it, it. Yeah, definitely the pandemic made me like. Uh, it made me a lot grumpier. I used to be like very. <laughs> I was a lot more like optimistic about people before the pandemic. The pandemic definitely gave me like a kind of low opinion of my uh, fellow countrymen because of the the way that they just went along with everything. You know, there's just like no getting away from it. It made me like, yeah, it, it gave me a much more kind of um, kind of, yeah, low opinion of humanity in that way. Yeah. And certainly a low opinion of people's ability to think critically. Um, did you did you have a lot of move? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah, I think just just to finish that thought, I think what what really made me sad was the uh, what it said about um, how people are willing to accept um, countervailing views or views that are outside the mainstream, right? So you know, the, the, the thing about vaccines is the the best example of that. Like what we, what what could have happened is we could have had a sensible, open debate about. Do you want to take a vaccine or not? Who should take a vaccine and who shouldn't? We could have had like a, a very rational, reasonable discussion of that issue, right? But we didn't. Instead, we just got either you take the vaccine or you're a crank, you know, you're a nut job, you're crazy, you're anti-vax. This just total unwillingness to just even have a sensible discussion about it. Um, that really made me worried because that made me think, well, that's going to be the case with everything, right? Any issue that matters from now on, you're going to have the mainstream view and you're going to have the other people who are going to be like demonized as being conspiracy theorists or crazy or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, stupid. So just the inability of people to just talk about things and just accept that other people have different views and, and see the world differently um yeah that really worried me the way that 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 played out yeah i know you're interested in technology but reading a lot of your articles i started seeing like more philosophy type stuff as well too or just older writings of things at least you're dating things back to either i i wouldn't be able to rattle off their name because i'd probably mispronounce it but um i was looking through it i was like you know this is interesting you're having more of like a human consciousness type discussion about things like what's this doing to people which is how i kind of tackle it like what's this more not, i wouldn't say psychology but more of like a moral thing of like 
you're putting some really serious devil bargain topics up and then you're asking people to make a decision which is like it's not fair because you're 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 coercing them in a sense to a lot of things to trying to adapt but did you have an issue with people moving in the UK? Because we had a lot of people that moved and it seemed like wherever they moved from was because the state that they moved to wasn't because it was cheaper. It was because it fit their political view. So instead of seeing like where people would put it in their fucking bio on social media, you see it like where people are like are now identifying by the state. Like a lot of people that did not want to hear any COVID talk or didn't care about any of the rules went to Florida or Texas and yeah. Well, that's the great thing about your country, though, um, you know, as an outsider looking in is that um, you can do that, right? Um, that's the whole point of like the federal system, right, is that you've got your different states and they can, to a certain extent, they can kind of experiment. You know, you can have like Texas doing one thing and going its own way and you can have, you know, California doing its own thing. And you can see which works best. And people who think, oh, well, what they're doing in Texas is better and move to texas right <laughs> and that's a that's a good way that's a kind of like a really interesting way of running a country is giving people that option i mean obviously it costs money to move obviously not everyone can i get it but there is a bit of kind of experimentation that you can do the problem with we've got in the uk is you've only got one government right so wherever you go i mean okay england and scotland and wales and northern ireland have a bit of a difference but not a huge amount so you know, whether I live in London or whether I live in Liverpool or Newcastle or Glasgow or Edinburgh, it's basically going to be more or less the same, the same system. So I think actually the, the, what you're talking about is actually um, quite a healthy thing. And where are you actually? What state are you in? I'm in Maryland. Um, our governor was not, uh, I don't agree with everything he did during this pandemic. He did the whole ventilator thing. Um, and then he also uh, really banned monoclonal antibodies and other, other forms of treatment. Um which was, I think, stupid because if you really care about people, you would be looking at anything possible to be able to treat anybody for COVID rather than just a shot. But I don't know. Our, a lot of our governors, you really got to see a different side of them um, when it came to this whole thing, like a lot of more pro-lockdowns. And then after it was all over where we're at now, they really pointed the finger at you know the main government or a certain politician that was up there. I was like, yeah, but you met the policies for us. Like That's the yeah, big yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, to go back to our earlier conversation, where a lot of people just really liked being in charge. You know, I mean, you've got to think like the type of person who becomes a governor of a state is someone who likes being in charge, right? So being able to like tell people what to do was just like catnip to them. They loved it. Or going to a bar and getting free drinks. I noticed that with my governor a lot. I'm like, I always see him at like a bar, like, oh, get him a shot or something like that. I'm like, oh, dude, that's what you're doing it for. It's but, worth becoming like, a governor just for the free drinks. Probably like that's the thing. <laughs> like a couple pina coladas. All right. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be governor for a brief amount of time. But <laughs> do you really think like the pandemic, I mean, in your perspective, kind of really showed a clear distinction of like elitist thinking or just elites in general? I mean, I know that term deep state gets tossed around a lot. And like I said, I do believe it. But this pandemic, I think, got people to start listening in on the conversation a little bit when it came to the deep state talk. There is still that divide of like, oh, that's conspiracy nonsense. But I think they really kind of opened them up to like, okay, maybe it's just capitalism. Like that's what I think the deep state is, is just cap and our agencies too. I don't know what the CIA and the FBI really do. They say they do one thing, but I keep coming across documents that say they're doing something else. I'm like, hey, hang on a minute. Yeah, I think um, it's a tough one in terms of um... – I think, so yeah, it's a th difficult thing to talk about because as you rightly say, as soon as you mention the word deep state, people are thinking, oh, conspiracy theory. But the way I think of it is that, you know, there's, um, 
you have um so you've got people who um have gone to university right and are well educated and there's an awful lot of them and they get inculcated in like a particular worldview um from their professors at university and then they go out into they work for the government they work for you know different agencies they work in businesses and they kind of just carry with them this worldview and i don't think it comes from any individual person like i don't think it's it's there's nothing kind of sinister about it in that way it's not a conspiracy it's just they just happen to believe certain things that that have really and they all kind of or most of them at least end up believing the same things because they go to the same kind of educational process so it's not that you've got this kind of sinister elite who are kind of plotting in the background to kind of you know dominate the world or anything it's more just that you've got a certain mindset that kind of filters out from particularly from universities into into these different kind of uh, professions so that's the way i think about the deep state is more just you know if you meet anybody who's a government employee who's like you know kind of like a relatively senior level the chances are they went to to college, they went to university. They imbibe this particular kind of viewpoint. And therefore, that's the way they see the world. And that's how they're acting things out in their daily lives, in their jobs. And if everybody's doing that who works for the government, then you get the government or you get the state kind of skewing in a certain direction, right? Into kind of politically. So that's the way I think about it. That's the way I think things things have developed that's what i think the problem is really it's not like um anybody's doing it as like a sinister plot it's just like a natural thing that happens when you get so many people going through the education system and coming out at the other end and they're getting a job in a state agency yeah that's kind of what the deep state is really i think i don't know what you think about it but that's the way i kind of kind of think about it i think it's like a fraternity uh, a lot of people that share obviously the same views because of this either the area that they went to a lot of them like yale and harvard type schools um and then also a lot of people that stay on the bench for like till they die i think there's a they develop or know how it works but i think they develop business interests and some of that like insider trading stuff we know is real but there's like a real serious like ethics board that needs to go through and really cleared out. I know we didn't talk about the human rights lobby yet, but I was hoping that it was going to be a non-government entity that was going to do a government oversight committee or something to be able to, or just a human rights committee, anything, just to look through the, what the government was doing during this pandemic and see, okay, the reason why lockdowns, people really didn't stay in it that long was not just because it impeded on their rights, was because you guys did not follow the same rules. You guys were caught at parties and doing all these other types of things when you're telling people to stay inside their homes. So I kind of looked at it like, where's the human rights or anything like that to be able to go into looking into what our government was doing? And it can't be government officials. It has to be citizens. It has to be people that are really pressed on trying to get the truth of like what we did and what we should have done, but also who was getting a lot of incentive to do the things that we were supposed to do? Hospitals pushing ventilators, getting a large budget for doing that as well, too, for each COVID death is a big issue. And our statistics are going to be completely messed up because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why you need a trustworthy media to investigate these things, don't you? At the end of the day, that's why you need a kind of, a, a, you need journalists who people can basically trust to provide them with accurate information and to investigate these things. 
So because we can't do that for ourselves as much as we might try to be like citizen journalists or to, you know, kind of look at things in our spare time. Or most people haven't got the time to, to, to you know, be investigating each individual issue, right? We're relying on journalists to do that for us. So that's that's the real scandal about the media is just how it's just like stop doing that. You know, it's all just about like, you know, kind of like, uh, well, here's why Trump's bad. Here's why this is bad. Here's why X is bad. Here's why Y is bad. Um, you know, here's why you should wear a mask, et cetera, et cetera. It's never about let's actually just investigate what's going on anymore. You know, that that aspect of journalism's dead. And that's what we need so much, you know, just to be able to sift through all the information that's out there on our behalf, you know, because we can't do that for ourselves. Or it's very tricky, it's very, very difficult to do that for ourselves. Very time consuming. I know like you have a sub stack and you write on Brownstone and everything like that, but I mean, has it I guess give you enough confidence to keep pursuing more articles and trying to write about things that you find individually interesting that the public should know about yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah i'm gonna yeah because i mean i had a big so yeah i think substack took off during this pandemic i see a lot more of it now and i think it's great because you get varying different views without any control over it yeah you do yeah yeah that's absolutely right and what's happening i think and what needs to happen more is that um, we need to just have more open discussion about everything um, insofar as we can and with whoever we can and not kind of like censor ourselves too much because the only way that you're going to get out of a kind of sort of like censorious kind of climate and a climate in which people can't speak freely and which people can't just talk with each other openly the only way you get out of that is by doing it, right? The only way that we can speak freely is by actually just speaking freely. The only way that we can have open discussions is by having open discussions. The only way that you can get to a situation where people can talk to one another who disagree with each other is by actually doing that, right? And talking to people who disagree with you. So we just have to do that as much as possible. So Substack and things like, you know, podcasts like what you're doing are great because it's just a way of... um breaking down the walls a bit and just kind of creating a bit more space in which people can just talk to one another. Um, so I'm a great believer in just doing that and just, uh, yeah, so I'm going to keep writing what I'm writing. I'm sure it hurts me <laughs> professionally because like, you know, academics aren't supposed to, you know, have conversations with just like ordinary people, you know, for some reason we're all just supposed to like lock ourselves behind closed doors and just <laughs> discuss ideas between ourselves. I don't really know why that is. Um, I noticed that more with Imperial College. For some reason, they have a media person that has to approve you first. And I'm like, I've spoken to thousands of people from there. I don't know how I keep getting accepted. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that, actually. I, know, I wouldn't have thought of that but, but since you said it. But now, yeah, it kind of makes sense that they would do that, actually. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure like the big institutions all do that. Yeah. So, but you've, you've talked to quite a few academics, though, haven't you, on your podcast? Yeah, there's not just conspiracy stuff. Before, like I got into the JFK stuff and all that type of stuff, I was talking to mainly academics. I've talked to any subject you could possibly think of from any college you could possibly think of, either mostly from any country, even Japan and China and things of that sort. Um, limited in those conversations on depending where the area is, but I 
the best thing to do is be able to talk to someone without really giving them, like, I can't offer you an interview, but I can offer you a conversation. And I feel like to me, it's more important because you kind of see the walls that everyone kind of keeps up to seamless professionalism where you can speak to an individual one-on-one, but man, the academic thing, I don't know why they should be incentivized to go speak out more. Like, I mean, I'm sure you might get some stuff from your institution based on the writings that you have and things of that sort, but I don't know why you would, you're not representing them. You're just talking about your perspective on things. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as you probably know, it's kind of like, it depends on what you're saying, right? And who you're talking to. Like if I was on, um, let's say if I was talking to um, like a, an outlet like CNN or something, then that would obviously be like, great. You know, the university would love that. Wear but... our shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's like, you know, um, talking about the vaccines skeptically, then it's like, yeah, we definitely don't want to talking about that. So <laughs> as you can imagine, it kind of varies from topic to topic. So yeah, but I'm, I kind of, I've got to the point now where I don't really care anymore. I'm kind of just, yeah, I'm just going to sort of try to speak my mind as much as we can, because we have to do that. But like I said, for the reasons that I said, you know, we just have to just um, get over this thing of, of censoring ourselves and avoiding certain topics because it's awkward or we shouldn't be talking about it. That's just, because if you do that, that's just never going to end, you know, um, I'll have to send you the link of Kerry Mullis because exactly what you just said about not caring anymore, that's him 100% in this video. It's about an hour and a half long, but he says some stuff about these institutions where I was like, yeah, you're lucky you didn't live because you would have been, you would have been got some other way. Um, but I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show um, and have the conversation with me. I really enjoyed talking with you, but is there a place where people can find your links, your Substack, Brownstone articles? Yeah, my Substack's probably the best. To go to so that my stub stack is i'll give you a link to it you can put it like on your 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 show notes or whatever but it's news from uncible so that's all one one word news from uncible so uncible is spelled u-n-c-i-b-a-l news from uncible.substack.com uh, so that's where you can find because most of my writing will be on there like cross-posted if it's on uh brownstone or somewhere like that um so yeah they can find my stuff there I try to update it once a week. I've been a bit lazy recently because, well, not lazy. I've got just like loads of work to do. So <laughs> my day job. So I haven't posted as much there lately, but yeah, you can find all my stuff uh, on that, on that site. So yeah, you can subscribe. It's free. You know, it's not, um, not going to charge you anything. Um, Twitter. I hope you'll like it. You got a Twitter? Uh, no, I'm not on Twitter. No, oh. that's, yeah, I'm a, uh, this might open a can of worms, but yeah, I'm uh, I'm against Twitter just because if you go on Twitter, I just feel like it drives you crazy. So like, it's all social media. I feel <laughs> like, um, but I'll link your Substack in there, man. Uh, I'm, I'll subscribe to it as well too. Um, and I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. And thanks everybody for listening to this episode. Bad